Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for November 13th to 19th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Michael Rashad on the life and career of behaviorist Clark Hull. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For November 13th. In 1841, James Braid saw his first demonstration of mesmerism. He believed mesmerism to be fraudulent, but its effects to be authentic, and he coined the term hypnotism for the phenomenon. For November 15th, in 1889, the first of a series of articles by Joseph Delboeuf appeared in Revue de Belgique, describing Pierre Janet's use of hypnosis to remove hysterical symptoms. And also on November 15th, in 1949, Donald O. Hebb's book, The Organization of Behavior, A Neuropsychological Theory, was published. Also on November 15th, in 1963, the drug diazepam, better known under its trade name Valium, was approved for use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Diazepam is used as an anxiolytic and a sedative. At one time, Valium was the most frequently prescribed medication in the United States. For November 16th, in 1881, the trial of Charles Guiteau, assassin of U.S. President James Garfield, began. Guiteau's insanity defense was a cause célèbre of the day. Eight experts testified that he was insane, and 15 others testified that he was sane. Guiteau asserted that the murder was justified because God had ordered him to do it. For November 18th, in 1882, Joseph Breuer first told Sigmund Freud about Anna O's cathartic talking cure, five months after Breuer's final visit with Anna O. Freud would go on, of course, to make the cathartic method the foundation of psychoanalysis. Also on November 18th, in 1964, the term debriefing, borrowed from British military jargon, was first used in its psychological context in an article by Stanley Milgram, published in The American Psychologist. Milgram used the term to describe the post-experimental measures taken in his studies of obedience. For November 19th, in 1901, John B. Watson began his first psychology experiment as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. He studied maze learning in rats. And finally, of particular interest to the history of psychology, on November 15, 1965, the Archives of the History of American Psychology was founded at the University of Akron. The first director of the Archives was John A. Popplestone, and it has since been taken over by David Baker, who we heard in an earlier installment of this podcast. On November 19, 1952, the last book written by Clark Hull, A Behavior System, was published by the press of his home university, Yale. Unfortunately, the book appeared six months after its author had died. Although Hull is not well known to psychology students today, he was perhaps the discipline's single most influential theorist and experimenter in the 1930s and 40s. His students and their students continued to exert a major influence over the fields of learning and motivation through the 1950s and into the 1960s. 
On the line to talk to us about Clark Hull's work and legacy is Dr. Michael Rashad of Florida State University. Professor Rashad co-edited with Abram Amsel the book Mechanisms of Adaptive Behavior, Clark L. Hull's Theoretical Papers with Commentary, published by Columbia University Press in 1984. Professor Rashad, could we start with a brief summary of Hull's formal theory of behavior and, and why it was so influential in American psychology, especially in the 1940s? About 1940, Hull began to elaborate a novel kind of theory for psychology. He hoped that this approach to psychological theory would, would provide psychology with the kind of tool it needed to make the kind of progress seen in the physical sciences. His theory was a behavior theory. It was a theory intended to explain the behavior of mammals. In devising this theory, he was greatly influenced by the experimental work of Thorndike, Pavlov, and others that identified effective conditions under which behavior changes as a result of experience. And the same work provided quantitative functions showing relationships between variables and behavior change. He was also influenced by Darwin's evolutionary ideas about the survival value of behavior, also by Freud's ideas that behavior is always motivated. It was influenced by the success of physiology and neurophysiology in revealing the physical mechanisms of behavior and by the successes of physical sciences when they use mathematical and logical techniques in their theories. So what Hall hoped was that he could integrate all of those factors into a single theory. So here was the general plan. First, by studying the existing research literature and conducting necessary experiments to fill in the gaps, it should be possible to identify a core set of principles that seem responsible for observed changes in behavior. And secondly, these principles should be stated in an unambiguous form, all terms defined clearly and precisely in a way that encourage their expression in quantitative mathematical formulas. So he planned three major publications that mapped into this broad plan. The first would be a statement of the core principles, which he hoped would be seen by the entire field of psychology as an illustration of how effective theory should be done. And his major book in this regard was published in 1943, and its full title reflects his goals. The title of that book was Principles of Behavior, colon, An Introduction to Behavior Theory. So right after this book was published and received a lot of attention, he began working on the second book in the plan. This was a book that would apply the principles to make predictions about the behavior of individuals in complex situations. And he ran into major problems that we can discuss later. And this book was rushed to finish just before his death, almost 10 years later. And it's the book that we're recognizing as publication uh, in this discussion today. And its title and subtitle are notable. Its title is A Behavior System, colon, An Introduction to behavior theory concerning the individual organism, published in 1952. And then, of course, he did not get to write the planned third book on behavior theory applied to groups. At the heart of this whole theoretical effort were specific and quantitative assertions about some core questions about behavior that had been the subject of much interest for years. I think there really are three questions here that 
were tried to be addressed in this quantitative way. The first one is, what is learned? Hull's answer was, when you learn, the learning involves associations between neural representations of stimuli and responses. Uh, that is, he offered an SR psychology. The second question is, well, what conditions are necessary for learning to occur? And his specific answer was reinforcement is necessary in the form of a reduction in a bodily state of need or a reduction in a drive must happen for an association to be strengthened. And finally, I think the question was always of interest, why is learning expressed in behavior sometimes, but not always, when an organism is in a stimulus situation? And Hall's answer was that a drive state is necessary to energize learned associations into performance. He made a mathematical statement about this that was quite famous at the time that asserted that behavior can occur when an association is energized by a drive state. So a hungry animal that knows how to press a bar to get food will perform a learned response to obtain food because its associations are energized by that drive if it's hungry, but a satiated animal uh, will not perform. Well, that uh, uh, tells us a lot about, about the theory that he ultimately produced, but what was the man like? Where did he come from and where did he get his education? Well, there's an interesting story here, I think. He grew up in a rural environment on a farm uh, in upstate New York and, and, and then in Michigan. He was born in Akron, New York, near Niagara Falls, and the family moved soon to Michigan near, near Saginaw. He was skillful at designing and making equipment for experiments, and actually he was fascinated with machines for much of his life. His education was in Michigan schools. He went first to a one-room schoolhouse, then had a two years of college in a preparatory course for mining engineering at uh, Alma College, where he was exposed to mathematics and physics and chemistry. Then he enrolled for two years at the University of Michigan. He enrolled as a junior and uh, graduated with a bachelor's degree there. Uh, I'd like to note that he was, he was not a typical undergraduate at Michigan. He was physically disabled. Polio had damaged one of his legs, and he had to wear a brace, which actually he designed and his brother made at a blacksmith shop. Also, he had a poor memory for names, which was the result of a serious bout of typhoid fever that permanently damaged his memory. And he was certainly older. He received his bachelor's degree when he was 29 years old. After getting his bachelor's degree at Michigan, he was broke and took a job at a teacher's college in Kentucky for a year to make some money. Then a professor at his Michigan school helped him make contact with a professor at the University of Wisconsin where he was uh, accepted for graduate study. His uh, dissertation project concerned an experimental study of the way humans develop abstract concepts. He actually designed and made what he called an automatic memory machine for presenting visual stimuli together with nonsense names. We know quite a lot about him because he meticulously kept private notebooks in which he recorded his thoughts and plans and his reactions to ideas that he encountered in, in his reading and in his research. He started these notebooks as a young man because of his faulty memory following the bout with typhoid fever. And about a decade after he died, extensive excerpts from these notebooks were published in a journal called Perceptual and Motor Skills. And, and finally, I'd just like to note that he was fascinated with the possibility that automatic psychical machines, as he called them, might be built with a kind of nervous system so that the machines could learn and perform actions 
and and he wondered if he could test experimentally based ideas about learning and performance by building a machine that performed and seeing if it did what the learning and performance principle should uh, would predict. This would be a, a robot. Um, and he has a quite interesting personal note that as he writes about this, that he wondered if he might be a trifle mad or considered a trifle mad for proposing such an idea. I, I sometimes wonder if, if Hull were uh, a student today with these kinds of interests and motivations, whether he'd be a, a computer scientist or a robotics researcher. Mm-hmm. Well, now you mentioned Hull's doctoral dissertation on concept learning, um, and uh, he worked with, as you said, Joseph Jastrow at Wisconsin, but he soon embraced a, a form of behaviorism. How did that transformation in his thinking come about? In 1929, he was offered a research position in psychology at Yale University. So at the age of 45, he left this Midwest environment that he had grown in and been educated in and moved to a premier East Coast Ivy League school. Uh, This was quite a personal transition for his his family, uh, but the professional transition was enormous as well. He became associated with Yale's Institute of Human Relations. This was an early example of an interdisciplinary institute that was concerned with approaching behavior at several levels, psychology, sociology, anthropology, and so on. All were represented by strong faculty at the institute. And this institute attracted some remarkable students, uh, many of whom attended Hull's weekly seminar. Hull had no formal teaching duties there, but the seminar was one that he valued very much because he could interact with, uh, with students. And of course, he had a, a laboratory where he conducted many uh, experiments. Now, in his autobiography, which was published in 1952, he recounts how this move to Yale and this new environment provided him with the opportunity to think in a different way about how he could make an impact in psychology. And a couple of his comments here are, I think, germane to understanding this transition. He, he writes that about 1930, he came to the definite conclusion that psychology is a true natural science and that its primary laws are expressible quantitatively by means of a moderate number of ordinary equations. Then he goes on to say that he came to believe that all the complex behavior of single individuals will ultimately be derivable as secondary laws from the primary laws and a knowledge of the specific conditions under which the animal is behaving. So if you think about the major ideas in psychology in 1930 that Hull was contemplating making into principles and using as the basis for principles, they would be Thorndike's research and ideas about simple learning processes in animals and humans. Then Pavlov's lectures on conditioned reflexes had just been translated into English in the late 1920s. Of course, John B. Watson's behaviorism had become well-known and was influential in American psychology. Freud's writings had emphasized the centrality of motivation as a factor in all behavior. And there were advances in understanding the physiology of sensory processes and neurophysiology that were influencing psychology. So here Hull thought that these lines of work were on the right track to arrive at a scientific understanding of how experience comes to alter behavior. And he saw this opportunity that he could try to combine these approaches 
into one theoretical approach with strong quantitative properties that would advance psychology. And he committed himself to that task, for better or for worse, and so the transition occurred. It seems that Hull's best-known work today is his 1943 Principles Principles of Behavior. Um, But the book we're discussing today, uh, Behavior System, was not published until several months after Hull had died in 1952. Do you think it it is less well-known because he did not live to promote it? Or do you think that by the 1950s, psychology had incorporated most of what it could from Hull's view and was beginning to move on to other things? Well, before 1952, Hull realized that his approach was in difficulty. Right after the 1943 principles appeared, uh, he began writing the next book, and he states that in four years, he had successfully completed drafts of 12 chapters for this new book. But he realized that this whole approach was in trouble. The problem was that the original principles of behavior, the book, included many guesses about terms in the theory and their quantitative properties and their mathematical relations to other terms. And as more and more data came in about these terms, the original principles had to be revised. Now, Hull anticipated that, but it turned out that this created huge problems for the theory. Uh, In particular, there was trouble with his assertion that learning required reinforcement, and especially with the assertion that reinforcement must be a drive-reducing event. And data began to appear that showed that these assertions and others were were questionable, uh, needed to be altered, particularly data showing that a shift in a just simple shift in a reinforcement value from a high to a low uh, value, animal was still being reinforced, results in emotional reactions that were not anticipated by the theory. And this famous, at that time, partial reinforcement effect on extinction was one that was not anticipated by the theory either. So here, within the theory's province itself, there was mounting evidence that the approach that Hall had taken was, was faltering. Also, data from outside the theoretical area he was focused on uh, began appearing from new kinds of learning situations that were not anticipated by Hall. And Skinner had published uh, his paper that was aimed at Hull and the other learning theorists titled, Are Theories of Learning Necessary? in 1950. And this paper attracted much interest for the novelty of its claims and its data. And Skinner's whole approach provided interesting new problems and to study and a relief from theoretical arguments and details. So I think that contributed to this as well. Also, interest was developing in the 1940s in the neurophysiology of learning as new techniques became available and new thinking. Um, And this was greatly stimulated by the appearance of Donald Hebb's book, The Organization of Behavior, uh, which also included instances of learning and and perception that were not represented uh, in Hull's theory. And finally, around these time, this time and subsequent years, the emergence of cognitive psychology and anthology as the source of interesting new problems and phenomena for psychology to study made Hull's approaches less central. And even in this 1952 book, which purported to deal with complex behaviors such as problem solving, behavior in spatial situations, uh, behavior chains, and even value in behavior theory, these are 
titles of some of the chapters in this 1952 book, they were uh, just simply not uh, paid much attention to at that point because they uh, seemed to have had serious difficulties in terms of understanding how the theory could apply at that level when it was already wrestling with difficulties in its in its basic principles. In fact, if you read the preface to the 1952 book and the concluding chapter of that book, both of which were written near the time of Hull's death, there, there's an air of resignation about them. Uh, sprinkled with some hope that younger psychologists would see the value of his approach and embrace it. Uh, but this was not to be. Instead, like, like the young Clark Hull, analytical and ambitious behavior scientists in the 1950s and beyond focused their interest elsewhere. Hull may have overreached in this attempt at formal theory, but to have tried well and failed is, is certainly an achievement and I think is instructive for those that followed. It should also be remembered that Hull carried out much other substantive work than that reflected in his formal theory of the 1940s and the book we're discussing, the 1952 book, uh, particularly a brilliant series of papers published in the Psych Review in the 1930s that provided analyses of cognitive processes, such as knowledge and purpose and directing ideas, in terms of Pavlovian and Thorndikean uh, concepts. And these, these papers included a vigorous debate with uh, Tolman uh, on the cognitive behavioral approaches in psychology versus uh, Hull's and others' SR approaches. Some commentators, and, and I, I'm one of them, think that those papers are his most lasting uh, contributions to psychology. And those papers and, and others he published in the Psych Review in the 1940s can be found in a book by Amsel and Rashad in 1984, titled Mechanisms of Adaptive Behavior. So I think psychology was lucky to have had Clark Hall. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Dr. Michael Rashad of Florida State University. Uh, Professor Rashad is the co-editor with Abram Amsel of Mechanisms of Adaptive Behavior, Clark L. Hull's Theoretical Papers with Commentary, published by uh, Columbia University Press in 1984. If you would like other information about Clark Hall, you can go to some of the other uh, publications that he mentioned during the interview. In particular, Passages from the Idea Books of Clark Hall, which was published in the Perceptual and Motor Skills Monograph Supplement 9, Volume 15, in 1962. Hall's autobiographical chapter can be found in Volume 4 of A History of Psychology and Autobiography, published in 1952, and edited by Edwin G. Boring, Heinz Werner, Herbert S. Langfeld, and Robert M. Yerkes. Some of the important articles that Hull wrote in the 1930s that uh, Professor Rashad mentioned can be found on the Classics in the History of Psychology website. They include the 1934 Psych Review article, The Concept of Habit, Family, Hierarchy, and Maze Learning, Parts 1 and 2, and The Conflicting Psychologies of Learning, A Way Out, which is from Psych Review in 1935. One of Tolman's most important responses is the 1948 article, also in Psych Review, Cognitive Maps in Rats and Men, and that can be found on the Classics in the History of Psychology website as well. (music) 
And now it's time for our birthdays. For November 13th, in the year 354 AD, Aurelius Augustinus, better known as St. Augustine, was born. He describes several faculties of the soul, including reason, memory, will, and imagination. For November 15th, in 1905, E. Lowell Kelly was born. Kelly's main interests were in clinical psychology and personality, and he was American Psychological Association president in 1955. For November 16th, in 1852, Maximilian von Frey was born. Von Frey was first to confirm the existence of locations for heat, cold, pressure, and pain reception. Also on November 16th in 1920, Dorothea Jameson was born. Jameson, with Leo Hervich, has been responsible for pioneering experiments on color vision and optics. Jameson was only the third woman psychologist elected to the National Academy of Sciences, and that was in 1975. For November 17th in 1857, Joseph-Francois-Félix Babinski was born. Babinski was the French neurologist who discovered the toe reflex in infants, the absence of which can indicate impairment of the central nervous system. For November 18th in 1828, John Langdon Down was born. In 1866, Down first described the syndrome of physical and mental abnormalities that now bears his name, Down syndrome. In 1835, Cesare Lombroso was born. Lombroso is famous for arguing that criminality results from genetic degeneration and that these genetic defects can be detected by facial features typical of more primitive stages of human development. And finally, for November 19th in 1898, William H. Sheldon was born. Sheldon is famous for having argued that different personality types are related to different body types. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 